it's probably not what you think it's going to be. So I appreciated Josh's theme and study and interaction on this topic. Uh, I think it's going to be a blessing to you. And so, um, yeah, we wanted to bring him in. And then uh, please do welcome Josh. Uh, Father, we are so grateful for your word and your spirit that you work in your people through your word, by your spirit, you you open up the truth of your word to us. You you open our eyes. You soften our hearts. You convict us of sin. You lead us into righteousness. And we're grateful for faithful ministers who love you and your word, who, who love your people and, and look to uh, point us. And we pray that during this time that that would happen, that your church would be built up and that you would be glorified. And we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for such a warm welcome, and welcome to an intimate evening. Just let's keep that between us. If that gets to my elders, I'm sure I'll be brought up on charges. Um, We're Presbyterians. When you say the word intimate or intimacy, we all just go, ooh, like that. Uh, I have loved getting to know Steve over the past four years. Uh, I find it mutual keeping me sane through this process. It's good to just have a fellow pastor who cares about his people, cares about the Lord, cares about his word, cares about uh, trying to help people love the Lord more. More than just wanting to get the education and put a DR in front of your name or self-glory or anything like that. How do we get to this process and make people to love Jesus? So that's, that's been um, a process that Steve has really helped me with and through, and so really appreciate him there. So as Steve said, my dissertation is on intimacy. Now, that's a, that's a loaded word, and so we're going to talk about that a little bit today, uh, or this evening. And I, I want to say that intimacy in and of itself, it gets used on the lips of Christian authors, pastors, and speakers very early. This word comes from Latin, uh, early, late Latin, when it makes the jump into English within about 40 years you can find sermons, and sermons by Puritans. How many people, when you think of Puritans, you think of them writing and teaching and using the word intimacy? Probably not a bunch of you, right? But uh, three of the Westminster Divines, you can find sermons where they talk about intimacy, intimacy with the Lord and intimacy with one another. As As soon as the word gets developed in English, it seems to be used and applied on our lives with one another, but more importantly, with God himself. How is it that we have intimate communion with God here, this side of glory? So the problem, though, is is that then you begin to use that word, but there's not by way of clear definition. What do we mean when we say intimacy? Um, I'll have you, at the end of this, think about and write down maybe, maybe talk amongst yourself, If you were to use the word intimacy, what would you be saying? What would you be trying to communicate? What would you hear someone else communicate if they used that word? And then this is what I want to challenge you to. Just look out for the word. And one of its cognates, intimate or intimacy, over the next week or two. And what you'll find is it gets used all the time. Someone can know the baseball stats of their favorite team intimately. People can know their spouses, as we would expect for them to, intimately. People can even talk about things like digital intimacy. What in the world does digital intimacy even mean? Right. So the word gets used, it's just so native for us to use it, but we need to have some sort of sense of what it is that we're talking about. Uh, So uh, when I began to audit the word intimacy... What I found was that it was used frequently in the 16th, 17th, even 18th century. The word seemed like it was native on tongues and pens, especially in Christian circles, early. But sometime in the late 19th and early 20th century, it takes a dip. It seems like when we make the modern turn... And we want everything to be so well precisely defined. That word, which escapes oftentimes 
real easy and quick definition, it begins to go down. And then, starting around the 70s, when you begin to see the postmodern change, and all of a sudden experience and emotions are the things that we really begin to value, you will see the word intimacy reemerge, and it gets used everywhere. Um, like I said, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I think I was telling them, if you were to look at Keller's book on prayer, how many of you have read Tim Keller's book on prayer? A couple? It's a good book on prayer. I don't always agree with what Keller says, but I, that book I think is helpful. The subtitle of that book is Creating Intimacy with God. Right? Like he's, he's using this word and this phrase when it comes to prayer. Joni Erickson Tata, she has a devotion. Her devotion is creating intimacy with God. R.C. Sproul has a marriage book, and his book is called Intimate Marriage. All of a sudden, you see this reemergence of the word intimate and intimacy, and yet we really don't know what we're talking about. So that's what I want to do for you today, is I want to begin to define for you what intimacy is. However... It's a little bit more complicated than that. Because I'm not going to give you a quick, easy definition. Because I, I think you need as a definition. What I think intimacy is, is it's this concept, and I think what you need in order to understand it is something more akin to a grammar. You know, grammar. Grammar gives you rules. So that we know how it is that we should play when we talk with one another. And yet, inside those rules, it gives you the ability to express yourself uniquely. The way that I write things down, the way that I communicate from here, should be different than the next guy when they write or when they speak. And if it's not, if it's the exact same, what do you think? Someone's ripping somebody off. You've got plagiarism going on. Instead, grammar helps us to communicate uniquely. So I, I want to put in front of you a grammar of intimacy, an idea of some, some rules and, and some thoughts and some boundaries that then allow you to have unique expressions of intimacy in your marriages, in your relationship with God, and in your relationship with others. So that's, that's really my goal for this evening. So let me ask the question maybe get you guys thinking and are you guys okay like interacting with me yeah okay so when you hear the word intimate do you think closeness that's a that's a good that's a good general definition anybody else when they hear intimacy first thing off of your sex yeah i i, I would I think that, indeed, as Ken said, most people, yes, I know his name already. <laughs> as Ken said, most people, when you use the word intimacy, they think of it as a euphemism for sex. The problem is, is that when you use it as a euphemism for sex, it uh, inhibits your ability to think about what it is to be intimately connected to anyone other than your spouse. Now, you should have the deepest level of intimate connection with your spouse. In fact, of our human-to-human -human connections, it should be our most intimate. But you should also have intimate connections with the Lord. You should also have intimate connections with your children. Uh-oh, that seems a little odd, doesn't it? Maybe is intimacy, should you have intimacy with a kid? Well, think about the first and second person of the Trinity. Does father know son intimately? And does son know father intimately? And the answer is yes. In fact, they know each other at an intimate level that is by you and I. And we won't ever know it because theirs is perfect. You, you and I will always have an experience of it. They will have it in purity. Right? But it exists. It exists between first and second person. So there should be intimacy across multiple relationships, at multiple depths. And when intimacy is just a euphemism for sex, it 
it forestalls all of that. And if intimacy is a euphemism for sex, I, I can't even go there. I can't even think about what that means for the Godhead. Right? It's just disgusting. So intimacy must be something larger. Now, over here we had the word closeness. Actually, the Oxford uh, English Dictionary, their second intro closeness for intimacy. It's just a, a general term, meaning being connected and having some sort of close connection with someone or something. So we need to have a way to think forward, to think how do we create these close connections and disconnect it from a pure sex and sexuality issue. Though sex and sexuality are designed and by God to be good and is a vehicle by which we're connected and have intimate connections. So don't, don't hear me denigrating sex. I'm not, I'm not there. I'm just saying that sex is one thing that you do in order to have intimacy. Sex is not intimacy. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. What do we want to walk away with? We want to walk away with a better understanding of what intimacy is. A working model on how to create, maintain, and enhance it. Um, imagine if you had a model where you could say, hey, I'm feeling disconnected from you, and now I've got tools and hooks in order for us to begin to build connection or reestablish connection. You, you know what it feels like to be disconnected from your spouse. As long as you've been married more than like three weeks, you know what it's like to have a moment where you feel disconnected from your spouse. And I hope that those moments are fleeting. And yet, in most marriages, you're going to go through times where you feel a lot less connected and a lot more lonely. And people have that native instinct. There was a time when I felt so close to you and I felt so connected to you. And right now, it just we're living parallel lives. Like, I don't know you, you don't know my heart. And so what I'd like to do is give you a, a process by which you can think through, okay, if that's true, if we're beginning to feel like we're living these disconnected parallel lives, how do we now get back on track to live connected lives? How do I live a connected life with the Lord? One of the things that I will propose is that Psalm 88 is one of the most intimate psalms in the Psalter. How many of you have read Psalm 88 lately? It's the most depressing psalm in the Psalter. Most psalms have a shape, and it's a U-shaped. And it's good, right? It allows us to affirm goodness, and then to speak out about wherever we are in life, whatever we're afraid of, hurt, sad, angry, and then remind that part of us who God is again. Giving it rest. Giving it excitement once again. Giving it comfort about God's sovereignty, his power, his goodness. What he is going to do and what he has already done in Christ. Man, my soul needs that so often. But Psalm 88, instead of a U-shape, it's just a straight line down. It starts with It gets darker. And at the end, if you've got the NIV at least, and the NIV tends to be better than the ESV with poetry, it ends with the line, you, God, have made darkness my only friend. Now, I've got to be honest with you. If I were the Lord, and let's all think him that I'm not, but if I were, and someone came to me and they said, hey, I wrote a little ditty about you, and it goes a little something like this. You took everything away from me, put me in darkness, and I wish the end. I think I'd probably ask for a rewrite. Hey, don't forget about everything I did for you in Egypt. Psst, I've got my son coming. He's going to save you. But instead, the Lord said, yeah, that's about me. Those are the feelings and expressions of my believers sometimes. And he gives you this. Come here. Come to me with that. And it actually creates connection. Actually, create, and you can pour that out and place it in front of the Lord. 
and know that he's not going to smack you down or turn you away. And so the process about creating, maintaining, and enhancing intimacy, we'll talk about it in just a few minutes, that there's that that you can have with the Lord, not just with a spouse, not just friends. The other thing that I want you to take away with is a clear picture of what intimacy is designed for. You probably think you know, but there's been a good bit of research here. The more you search for intimacy, the less you tend to find it. It's, it's the same as the hedonism paradox. You guys ever heard of the hedonism paradox? Yes? No? No. Okay. Hedonism paradox is the paradox that those countries that have the greatest amount of disposable income, those that have the greatest opportunity to pursue their own joy are those that are riddled with the most depression, anxiety, and suicidality. Right? So you would, you would think, hedonism would tell you, if you can just run after everything you happy, you're going to be fulfilled. And it's the exact opposite. Actually, I'll be preaching on that on Sunday. when we. Same thing happens with intimacy. The more you run after it for yourself, I'm consuming intimacy rather than shepherding the intimacy of others. The more you find yourself on this treadmill where you can't get enough. You can't be connected enough. You can't be valued enough. You can't be sustained enough. What is Christ tells us the end of all things? The end of all things is increased love of God and self. No. Increased love of God and who? Neighbor. Right? The position that God wants you in, even in as regards to intimacy, as it is in you, not let me consume but let me give. Let me increase in these directions. Right? And so the purpose of intimacy, we want to talk about that. And then I want to give you an increased ability to troubleshoot wrong. Because things do go wrong, don't they? And we do find ourselves feeling alone and not intimately connected to one another. So that's, that's my goal for you at the end of this. Um, and I'll give you some questions and some things to talk about uh, at the end. Why is intimacy such a big deal? Well, first off, God had it with the very first couple. He he chose to be intimately connected to the very first couple. He's not the God who is the God of the deist, who chooses to create a world and walk away and not be known. Instead, he is a God who decides to walk in the cool of the day with the first couple. Do you recognize what an awesome thing that is? That God should decide to condescend to this creature in order to take time with them so that they could know him. He didn't need to know them anymore. He knew them perfectly. He didn't need to love them anymore. He loved them perfectly. He chose to walk. And that's, that's the key verb here. It's actually a, a Hebrew word, halak. I won't actually pronounce the Hebrew here because there's a lot of spittle that would hit, I think, just the entire row. But it's halak, and it means to walk with. And if you look at that word in a Hebrew uh, lexicon, it gives you a subgloss, a subdefinition, not just walk but intimate relationship. When when God chooses to walk with the first couple, he chooses to be in connection with them. By the way, it's also true that same verb is used in the exact same way when describing Noah. Noah, the most righteous man on earth, a man who did what? Walked with God. It's it's the same thing. He, he He didn't just go on walks with God. That's not what that word means. What does it mean when it uses that word with connection of Noah and God? He knew God. To walk with him, knowing him, being in relationship with him. God created us to be in relationship with him. God has it with us, not just 
Noah, not just the first couple, but he also uses this word. Psalm 25, 14, John 15, 15, he will use words of intimate connection. Those that fear God are his friends. Psalm 25, 14, but it's intimate friends. That's, that's the gloss for it. If you walk in his counsel, and that's the verb, it's, it's the uh, Hebrew word sodh is the, is the word. It means inner, intimate, most delicate uh, uh, counsel and discussion. He's, he's bringing you into the inside. So that you can know him and you can be one of his who is in the secret council with him. That has an intimate connection with him. John 15, 15. Um, and Jesus talks about love. And loving us and loving one another. And the word there is philos. And, and that word, uh, if you look at C.S. Lewis and his kind of four loves. That word specifically has something that is a connectional love. Agape has some, has some structure to it. And this means you and I are connected to each other. So God has this with us, and he has created us for it. Genesis 1, 26 and 2, 18. One of the most amazing pieces of the early scripture is, is that in Genesis 1, you have this common refrain. He creates and it is good. He creates and it is good. He creates and it is good. And it all comes to this crescendo. And it is very good. God looks at everything that he's created. And he is well pleased with his creation. And then you just you just flip to the next chapter. And then you see Genesis 2.18. And what is the description of Adam when he doesn't have an intimate life? It is not good. It, it's like a dissonant call. You have this beautiful choir out here. And then all of a sudden there's this dissonant note. And that dissonant note is louder because it's in contrast with the beauty of the resonance out here. The resonance is this is all good. And yet Adam, who God created by himself without yet a partner, it is not good. Now, did God just make an oopsie? Oops. Forgot to make an Eve. Sorry about that. No. And by the way, why would he have Adam go through and look at all the animals with their partner? What is the message he to push into Adam? I don't, look, I don't know how many animals were around back then. I imagine a lot. And I imagine that it took quite a bit of time to name them and to see them. It probably wasn't just an afternoon. Bear, tiger, mouse, whatever you are, platypus, right? I imagine that's not how it worked, right? Like, there's, there's time. And God is trying to emphasize a message for Adam through this. Pair by pair by pair. The thing that's really interesting about this is, is that is Adam actually alone? Who does he have? He has God himself. He's had communion with God himself. He's got all the animals. And for some people, that's enough, Right? You're, if you're one of those really big dog people and like, me and my dog, right? Okay. I, I hear you. But, but it seems like, seems like the Lord made us for more. The Lord made us to be in intimate connection with one another. That's, that's the very essence of part of what he wanted to communicate before there was ever a fall. That's, that's the third part that is so astounding about Genesis 2 is that something could be labeled not good before there was ever evil. 
how does that happen? Right? Even, even, even before sin and corruption and death, God can say, being alone is not good. Because he is a God that is never alone. In his Trinitarian nature, he is never alone. There is only one, but there is more than one that is that one God. Ask me to explain that to you, and I'll say, see Steve. It's just a classic Christian formulation of what we say about the Trinity. He is always and will always have perfect love and perfect fellowship. And he seems to be trying to teach something Adam there. Teach something Adam. Teach Adam something there. He seems to be trying to teach him, you need to be connected to others. You need fellowship and one that is like you. Not just me, but one that is like you. So intimacy is a big deal because we are created for it, and we seem to be created for it from the very beginning before the fall came along. It seems to be an essential element of what it means to live a life that glorifies God and understands God. So what happened to the intimacy for which we were designed? Well, you guys are churched well, so you know the answer. Sin. Right? Sin comes along and it destroys that connection. When Adam sees Eve, and we have the very first recorded speech, it's the very first recorded human speech, what is it? It's poetry. It's literally a love poem. That's, he sees her and she is so beautiful and so wonderful, he can't help but speak in poetry to convey some of his feeling and joy and the beauty of what he's seeing. And then all this, there's sin. And what does Adam say? In the most efficient use ever of blame shifting, God, it is the woman that you gave me. No, no responsibility, right? It's you and it's her, and that's it. It automatically creates a disruption in the connection between him and his spouse and between both of them and the Lord. Sin in its very nature wants to create a, a rupture and the fellowship that we have with one another and with the Lord. That's what it's designed to do. It's designed to get you to push back against God, to think that you know better than God, to think that you don't need God, that to walk with Him, which is to understand Him and apply His word and wisdom to your life, is folly. That's what sin is trying to do. By the way, it's the lack of intimacy and the lack of connectedness that is often an image of hell. So you see in Isaiah 24, Isaiah 25, by the way, one of my favorite chapters in all the Old Testament. If you don't know it, it's the, it's the chapter where the promise that death will be swallowed up on this mountain you see a beautiful picture of this incredible feast that's just a, a snapshot of the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's just a, a, a little bitty picture. And it's this banquet with the best, choicest of food and the very best of wine. Sorry, Al Mohler, but it is wine. All of it. Right? And it's, it's beautiful. And it's celebratory. Well, Chapter 24 precedes chapter 25, and it's dark, and it's terrible. And it's a picture of hell, what hell will be like for those who stand accursed and judged. And what is one of the number one experiences for those people? They will be alone. They will be alone in darkness. And the things that used to bring them joy will no longer bring them joy. Being alone, it, it is, mm, it's a tangible um, experience of hell. 
Sometimes we do that to those we love the most. As we, we give them the push off. And we, rather than steward them and show them love and connection and something of the gospel of grace, instead, we show them hell. And so what I'm saying here is that we, we need to more and more know how to respond to our houses and others in a way that fosters connection. That, that connection then shows something more and more of the love of God. The other thing that is interesting, when you begin to do research on words that have intimacy as a part of their frame in Scripture, you find that they are used almost, if not more frequently, in lament than in praise. Why would that be? Well, because it's used in lament when someone feels alone. Job uses four separate words to talk about intimacy and intimate friends all within one verse and says, you've taken all of these from me. And then there's uh, another place in Psalms where David, he's away uh, from Saul and he finds himself alone, uses that exact same phrase. I find myself alone without any and then multiple words that mean intimate and intimate friends. In, in its absence, when we don't have it, it seems like it is a reason for deep sadness and lament. Okay. So what happened to it? Sin. We did. We happened to it. And it is a picture when we choose not to do it of sin and hell. Okay, so here's my, uh, my transition to what I want to put in front of you by way of research is this idea of grammar instead of definition. Like I said, grammar gives meaning. It provides framework for clear expression. Let me give you an example. I could say the sentence. It's a terrible sentence. Don't ever use the sentence, but, but you'll get it. It is right to turn right right there. You all know what I said. None of you go, what? He used the same word three times. What could he possibly mean? No. It is correct to turn ordinal right at that approximate location. But it was a terrible sentence. It's a terrible sentence because I broke all kinds of rules of like grammar and when you would use words that are um, the same word with different definitions and proximity to each other. And it's by knowing things like semantics that helps you to correctly express yourself in a way that's clear and not confused. Right? So, so that's the point of grammar. And that's exactly what I'm going to do with intimacy. I'm going to give you six separate pieces of a grammar of intimacy. Before I get there, one more thing, intimacy is a whole person experience. It is not simply a feeling. It is a feeling, it is affect. We feel close to somebody, and therefore we might say that we are intimate with them. But it's also cognitive. It's knowing something or someone. Someone could say, I know them intimately, or I know that subject intimately. And it's knowledge that the average person doesn't just have. It's, it's something more than that. So it's cognitive. But it's also behavioral. It's something we do. We engage in behaviors that are intimate behaviors. Again, intimacy is often a euphemism for sex. That is a behavior that we engage in that increases our intimate connection. And there's a reason why that activity is reserved only for a man and a woman in marriage. Because that's the only relationship to have that level of depth to it. So it's a whole person experience. It's cognitive, it's volitional, it's affective. Something we know, something we do, and something that we feel. Okay. 
Let me now explain my six elements of intimacy. Number one, product. I'm a Presbyterian. If you didn't already know that, please don't stone me now. Um, but because of that, all of these alliterate. Right? I have six elements. They all alliterate. That makes my little Presbyterian heart happy. Okay? So the first one, product. Intimacy is a product. We actually have something you and I feel. And so my definition of the product of intimacy that we feel is a sense of deep and abiding connection. Let me say that again because it's super small on the screen. A sense of deep and abiding connection. Let me break that down for you. A sense. There's something about intimacy that you and I intuit. You can't take a blood test and check your intimacy levels, right? No doctor's going to be like, oh, your intimacy's a little low. We need to get you some vitamins. That, that's not going to happen. It's, it's something that you know inside. The thing that you know inside is, is that this relationship is deeper than a standard relationship. There's something about this that feels like it uh, can handle more. So it's abiding. It should be able to handle the crises of life. And it's connected. It's not something I feel in isolation. It's something I need in fellowship. It's me and one other. So that's the first piece of grammar, product, a sense of deep and abiding connection. That's what you want in intimacy. You want to feel with your spouse. You are known very deep level. That knowledge abides and can handle crisis and difficulty and that it creates a solid connection between you and them. Second piece. Places. So product is where it is that you can feel intimacy, different types of intimacy. The thing that pushed me down this route of research for my dissertation, there is an article that I wrote for Desiring God back in 2014 or 2015. Uh, it was based on, from my MFT, so I did a marriage and family therapy degree from 06 to 08. Uh, and one of the tools that we would use is something called the PAIR, the pair, and it's like the personal assessment of inventory in relationship, I believe is what it was called. And it was from this guy who did a bunch of research, and, and he found these five domains, five different types of intimacy. And so you would take this test to see, you know, do we have this kind of intimacy? Do we have this kind of intimacy? And so I wrote an article in 2014 talking about those five different types of intimacy, and patterns that I had seen in therapy about what men prefer, what women prefer, how men try to get what they prefer, how women try to get what they prefer. Uh, and this article went in so well, it got included with a devotional with book with Piper or whatever. So when I came in for my interview that, where Steve and I first met, they asked, do you have any topics that you want to do? I had topic one, I forget what it was. I had topic two, I forget what it was. And then I was like, you know, and then there's this article that I wrote that got really popular about intimacy, and I guess someone needs to do some research. And they said, boom, that's it. That's what you're doing. So this places probably has some of the most uh, secular research behind it. And the idea is that there are at least five domains where you can have intimacy with somebody. And those are spiritual intimacy, physical intimacy, emotional intimacy, intellectual intimacy, and recreational intimacy. Let me define those for you quickly. Spiritual intimacy. Spiritual intimacy is the sort of intimacy that you have when you guys are on the same sanctification trajectory. You guys are in the word roughly the same together. You notice that you're growing in the word together, your hearts are knit not only to one another, but also the Lord as you pray for each other. 
as you read the Word together often, as you try to apply the Word as a parent and as a worshiper, as you worship together because you know that there's something connected about worshiping when you sing and when you pray and when you hear the Word preached and it's the same Word that all of you are hearing together, there's something connected about that. And I always tell my couples, by pray for each other, I don't mean pray the prayer that most people pray, which is, dear Lord, please make my spouse the spouse I know I do. But instead, dear Lord, please make me the spouse I know you're calling me to. The one that will love more than myself. The one that's willing to sacrifice and to suffer and to show something of the glory of Christ. So, spiritual intimacy. We are on mission together for the kingdom together. Serving together. That's a big deal. Physical intimacy. This is sexual and non-sexual intimacy. Holding hands, cuddling on the couch, or sexual encounter. Emotional intimacy. Emotional intimacy is the sense that you get me and my heart. You know me. My fears are your fears. My joys are your joys. My boredoms you understand. You know that that person at work drives me crazy. And it's okay for me to talk about it for the umpteenth time. And it's, it's uh, received. So emotional intimacy is the sense that you are doing life with me. Now, it's interesting. They've done, again, a bunch of research here about men and women and how they experience emotional intimacy and their needs for emotional intimacy. Men have the exact same level of need for emotional intimacy as women. When asked on surveys and to talk about intimacy, men nominate emotional intimacy as a high need and just as high as women. Both people nominate women as being the ones who give emotional intimacy. Right? That something has happened modernly where men don't really know how to meet each other anymore. Now, men often want emotional intimacy as we are active together. Right, where women are often looking for emotional intimacy as we talk together. So that old saying that uh, men do life shoulder to shoulder, women do life face to face. So they need to do things like go play golf together and hunt together. Are y'all hunters? Is this a big hunting? I live in the South. Like it's hunting. There's always some hunting season that people are doing together. Um, but there's golf and there's you know fishing and there's all the stuff that men like to do that are active together. One of the reasons why men tend to talk best when they're driving is because they're doing something while they're talking. Whereas women actually want face-to-face. They want to talk and be across from each other. So men experience emotional intimacy by being able to talk, just to be able to, to say things and, and to know someone's there to hear them. Women usually experience emotional intimacy by how their partner receives them. So am I not? Am I giving you affirmation? I'm not just trying to fix everything that you're telling me. Right? That, that's oftentimes this goes sideways, by the way, as um, women try to talk to men, especially if they're coming home, and men are like, I just want to get in the door. Right? And, and men want to be able to talk, and women want a man who wants to listen. And then as that goes sideways again and again and again, you end up with this emotional disconnect. You end up with isolation rather than intimacy. So, Emotional. Uh, recreational. This is just we go and do fun things together. There's a type of intimacy that you have when you enjoy an activity. One of the reasons why table fellowship is so effective. It's one of the things that, you know, if you go on a date with somebody, what's one of the first things you do? You go shit together or have coffee together. By the way, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a sacrament that's a meal together. There's a connectivity that happens when we do things that are recreational for one another. Now, that can be other things, you know. I don't know what your recreations are. Again, it could be bungee jumping for all I know. I don't think a whole bunch of bungee jumpers in here, but it could be. But it's just being able to go out and enjoy life. It's part of that brings light and air into a relationship when you can just enjoy something together. Uh, and then the lastly, intellectual intimacy. Your mind is known. You're able to talk about things and ideas. 
And this can be deep things like theology, politics, education, philosophy. And it can be non-deep things. It can be, well, I was about to say sports, but sports is really deep for some, right? I get it. Um, but it can be the weather, right? Whatever it is. You're just sharing your thoughts and you're being received in your thoughts by somebody else. So that's places. Okay, next one, process. Wow, it's already almost 8 o'clock. We're on speed here. Process. The process is being genuinely known and received by another. Okay, this is where the sausage is made. If you want to know which of these elements carries the most weight, it's this one. I want to explain all of the pieces of the definition I just gave you. Being genuinely known and received by another. Genuineness. There are two sliders in any intimate interaction. And it is vulnerability and it's reception. So there's the one being known and then there's the one knowing. And the one being known has to be known genuinely. There, there's something that you can't just get or consume or see from the outside. It requires time. It requires mining a little bit. You know, when you were first with somebody, if it's your spouse, you just, you just tripped over gold and diamonds getting to know each other. I didn't know that about you, and I didn't know that about you, and that's awesome. And where did this, and how did, and what was your blah, blah? And then you get like two or three years down, and you're like, no, I don't even have questions. I know them perfectly. And instead, this is, I want to mine, I want to do the active work of getting to know your heart. And I'm going to do the active work of letting you know my heart. Which is hard, especially married to a sinner which means we're going to hurt each other's hearts a lot. And so I have to work not to isolate and bring that slider back to where I don't want to be open, I don't want to be vulnerable. And on the opposite side is the one who receives, you are working to show more of this, not that. And for every couple, it might be different. You your spouse may want you to be eye-to-eye -eye and doing a whole bunch of head nods. You might have a spouse that eye-to-eye -eye contact is really intimidating. Right? There's got, there are different ways to communicate reception. And you do it pretty natively as couples. But oftentimes there can be errors in that. And so there's a genuineness, vulnerability, a reception by one another knowledge genuinely known knowledge means more than just information it's experience with one another uh, there's a reason why online one of, one of the biggest problems right now with our digital society uh, is faux intimacy there's a good book a completely secular book by an author called sherry turkle and it's, uh, the title is Alone Together, Expecting More of Technology and Less of Each Other. And her whole thesis is that what we're doing is we're creating around us little bitty mirrors of ourselves. We're not being genuinely known by someone who is different. Because isn't there something about being received and valued by someone that doesn't seem to look and believe exactly like you do? Of course. And online, what we're being graded on, what we're being encouraged to do, is only share the things that you know everyone's going to give you a thumbs up on, or a heart on, or whatever it is. Rather than actually being able to be genuinely who you are. Beyond just the acceptance. Right? So there's a, there's a depth of knowledge here. So that's the process. Genuinely known and received by another. 
research really split out in the late 70s, early 80s in intimacy research. For a long time, it went just for product, just what is being felt, and then maybe some behaviors. What are intimate behaviors? But then uh, a chapter was written in the late 70s and then, and then kind of refined in the early 80s called Intimacy is Process. And it's a kind of a big, long process. This is just my, I think, layman's version of it, genuinely known and received by another. But if all four of those are true, and you're trying to make sure that those exist in my relationship, what does that mean with God? What does it mean with God to be genuinely known and received by him? What does it mean for you to genuinely know and receive the Lord? It, it, it can only be the ordinary means. As I pray, that's me genuinely being known by the Lord. And by the way, when we pray, and all God ever does when you pray is give you this. Paul says, pray without ceasing. God wants you to be someone praying all the time. And yet, why does God want you to pray? Is it because he needs to know more? No, he's omniscient. Is he asking you to pray so that he can give you some answer? You have all of his answers in his book. He's doing it as an accommodative act of love. Because he loves to hear the voices of his children. And that's who you are. He's giving you this because he loves you. Right? So you pray, and that's you genuinely being known. And then you read, and that's you genuinely knowing him. Notice how that works, how that creates the depth and the connection you want. It's the behavior, it's the knowledge, it's the feeling. And all of those things work together. That's, that's the magic. That's the, if you get those four pieces of the process and you start applying that to your various relationships, what you're going to find is it reveals a lot about how you are connected to others. That's probably the, the weightiest of these various pieces. Next. Procedure. So I'll just, this one quickly. I know process and procedure are, are however, every process has three phases an initiation, a maintenance, and a conclusion. And there are intimacy errors that happen at all three of those phases. Yourself feeling disconnected, part of what you can be doing, the troubleshooting is, which of these phases is going wrong? As I try to initiate an opportunity to be known, and instead of being known, instead of being received, I'm either ignored or rejected. Right? Those are, those are the two options other than reception. As we're having an interaction that feels intimate, something happens that makes me think you're not really here. Checking the phone, you know, trying to get some things done for the kids, whatever it is, you're not with me. And then... I, I'm, I'm not just, I can't keep doing this forever. Like, I'm a counselor dude. This is what I do for a living, eight hours a day. That sounds, I'm sorry, yes, oh, I'm sorry, right? But even I have limits of intimacy. Even I have limits, like, I can't keep doing this. And so we have to close that connection sometimes. And sometimes that goes wrong. When one wants to keep giving, and the other one's saying, I'm tapped out time for us to close this intimate connection right now and we can maybe pick up again later so procedure next people and this is what i was saying earlier that you have intimate connections with people that are just more than god and your spouse it's that but it's also family friends fellow believers and others There's a bit of a gradation here of how much intimacy I can have with people. I definitely don't want to have more intimacy with an opposite gendered friend than I have with my spouse. And I don't want any doors that would even lead me there. And yet you should have intimate friendships. Right? Again, that's scripture is filled with them. Intimate friendships. 
Friends that are able to bear one another's burdens in that Galatians 6.2 way that fulfills the law of Christ somehow. I will say, and, and I think this will be, we'll, we'll talk about this next slide, I think there's something that grounds which people you have the most intimacy with. We'll come back to that. Okay, last piece. Purpose. And I told you this earlier. To increase love of God and neighbor. That's the purpose of intimacy. Because, as Augustine says in his book on Christian doctrine, all serve these two ends, the two ends which Christ himself lays out for us in Scripture. Namely, that we must increase our love of God and increase our love of neighbor. Somehow, intimacy is about sacrifice so that others might know something of love. It's not about us just consuming and trying to get our own intimacy needs met all the time. The best way to get yourself into cycles of isolation and not cycles of intimacy is saying, I will not meet your needs until you meet mine. And I guarantee you every single one of us has gotten there before. But instead, to be able to stand up and say, these are my needs, but I'm rushing to meet yours, regardless of if you meet mine. That's what I do, because that's, that's me trying to be Christ-like and love in a Christ-like way, that you, in our experience, might increase in your love of the Lord and me. All right, so those are my six Ps, my six pieces of a grammar of intimacy. Again, it's not, it's not as clean as a definition, but I think when you take all of those kind of planks and you lay them out, what it does is it allows you to have individual expressions of intimacy in your relationships with the Lord and others. All of that, for me, is set on one solid foundation, and that is covenant. Why is it that we have the most intimate connection with God and then the most intimate connection with our spouses? It's because those are the relationships that are grounded in covenant. And covenant, a public declaration of my willingness to be connected to you and for you no matter what. When we do our marriage vows and we say things like in sickness and in health and richer and poor, all of that, it's just an exposition of the one covenant promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's all it is. Covenant comes with that promise. And so covenants then give you the sort of security in order that you can have the vulnerability. And that's true of God. That's true of our spouses. It should be true of our families and true of friends, especially friends who are in the covenant family. Right? And then there are others. I'm not saying that you should not have any friends who are not believers. Like you, you need to go and love non-believers evangelistically. Go out there and know them and bring them over to your table and into your homes. But the depth and the, the breadth of your ability to be known by a non-believer should not be greater than your ability to be known and received by fellow believers because you share in the covenant community with God. I think I'm like 15 minutes over when I was supposed to stop. Okay. Let me flush in questions for you that you guys can talk around your tables with, but let me see if you guys have questions for me before I direct you to your questions on your sheets. Anyone? Okay. Feel free at any time. You can ask me any question you want. Here, I've got questions for you, though, that you guys can discuss. Some of these with your spouse, the group as a whole. One, when do you feel most connected to your spouse? What Are there times and activities where you feel most connected? On the opposite, I didn't ask this question because I, you know, I'm not trying to get you to go into a fight right here with your 70 closest friends. 
But I do wonder, are there times when you feel the least connected? Are there patterns that you can observe? Rank your intimacy places in order of importance to you. So remember those five types of intimacy? Spiritual intimacy, physical, emotional, recreational, intellectual. Rank them. One to five. Right? The most important to the least important. And if you, you want to take the Christian option off the table and say we all we should be number one for everybody, okay, great. So then rank the other four. Everybody about making sure that it's fine. Spiritual is number one. Rank the other four. What do you think your spouses would be? The order that you think that they would put them in. Right? And then see if you're right about each other. And there might be, for one of you, it might be intellectual is number one, and for the other one, it might be emotional is number one. Fine. There's no thus saith the Lord about this, about which one is supposed to be number one. And by the way, these change over time. That's one of the things that they found in the research was is that you can go through periods of life where you know, recreational intimacy might be number three for you when you're dual income, no kids, because you get recreational intimacy without thinking about it. Let's just go out, okay. But then you get a bunch of kids. It's like going out and having recreation time together happens about once a quarter. And so all of a sudden that shoots up to being more important because we don't get it as often and we want more of it. Okay, fine. Those can change in order, but it'd be interesting to see what are your orders. So if, especially if you or someone you know is struggling with connectedness, and uh, one of the uh, exercises I do is rank these from most important to least important, and then rate them. One to ten. How connected do you feel in each of these domains? I'm, I'm looking for sevens and above is what I would like for you. That tends to be, it's the same thing as nominating something either low, medium, or high. High tends to be seven or above. That's when you tend to have the most healthy marriages if you rank all of these high. Now, here's a life hack. If you find that some of these are low, again, and that does happen through the lifetime of marriages, if you just pick one and begin to focus on it to try and bring the rest come up with it because they're all related. You can't just focus on one. The more emotional intimacy that you begin to have, the more it makes you enjoy one another, the more you're probably talking about things, the more physical you're probably being together, the more you're praying well for one another. They're connected, right? It doesn't mean that if, if one's now a seven, then it's going to bring all of them up to a seven, but the general direction stays the same. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's a life hack for your uh, spousal relationships. If I just pick one of these five and we just focus on it to try and get it up, it's going to help bring all the others up. It is a warning about your relationships with other people, especially opposite gendered people. If you have a really intimate connection with a coworker and you guys have a whole bunch about intellectual stuff, guess what? The likelihood is, is you're going to start talking about emotional stuff. And then the likelihood is, is that you're going to want to do fun things and laugh together. And then you're going to start praying for each other. And then guess what the only domain that's left is? And you're going to want it. And it's physical intimacy. So that's the, that's the, the warning and the um, positive there. You just focus on one and it goes up, but you got to be careful about how you have it with others. Okay, another question. What increases your ability to be vulnerable with your spouse? What decreases your ability to be vulnerable? And you may find that these are very different. And that, hey, a lot of positive feedback from you really helps me to be vulnerable. And someone else may be, I just need you to be there and to be around, right? But I don't want too much attention. With whom are you most connected? Rank your top three. Right? What I was just saying about kind of God, spouse, family, friends, based on covenant, how does that, how does that compare? Do you feel more connected to a friend than you do to your spouse? And again, I'm for having close friends. I'm not saying that you have to get all your intimacy needs met from your spouse. But if you're more connected to a friend than you are your spouse, it's time to start asking questions. How do you try to meet your spouse's desire for 
oftentimes we're trying to find ways and we're doing what we think they need. So I just had a session with a pastor friend the other day and he was talking about how his wife is stressed out. They have four kids. Uh, it's a set of twins followed by two more and that both of the twins have some pretty significant um, mental health stuff, autism spectrum stuff. And so mom is trying to homeschool all four kids and, and she's just stressed, right? As you can imagine, she's just stressed. And so he's trying to troubleshoot this and he's like, I've told her she can go out with friends and I'll just keep the kids. I'll just come in and she can go out with her girlfriends. I'm like, okay, let me ask you. If you were in her shoes, is that what you would want? Yeah. What do you think she wants? Do you think she wants to get ready and go out with friends? Or do you think she wants just like a quiet, warm bath? Probably the latter. Right? Like, I don't know. But the way you've described your wife, she doesn't sound like an extrovert. Like, you're asking her to do more work after she's been working all day. He, he was trying to take care of her desire for connection and for reinvigoration. He was just doing it in the way that he would want someone to take care of him if he were in that space, rather than knowing how she wanted it. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, so those are my questions for you to, to maybe discuss a little bit. Um, any other thoughts or questions before I let you guys discuss? No? Okay, thank you. You guys have been a great audience, and I appreciate your attention.